Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And they were going, how much to me? And he went, eh, cheeky bastard, eh, because I've got a tracksuit tracks on. <laughs> Hello and welcome. This is episode 14 of the Paul Ryder Tapes, where Happy Monday's founding member and bass player Paul Ryder sat down with me, his ex-wife Angela Smith, to tell his unfiltered life story. And then 12 days after we finished recording, he passed away suddenly. Coming up in this episode... It was kind of, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? And it's like, Paul, mate, that shout's burning down. It's more than bad. That probably is, like, just another night in the world of the Happy Mondays. I got back to the hotel and puked up. The emotions was, uh... I don't even know exactly what I was feeling, but it was it made me physically sick. <laughs> Mike Winterbottom was so blown away by his acting. He just said he really plays sinister well to play this gangsters, really, who ran the door. Don't pull that in. <laughs> Don't pull that in. <laughs> oh dear, look at me. We left off the last episode as the house we'd bought in France was on fire. Yeah, and I had a fire going, a real fire in the fireplace. Yeah. Which was, uh, it was pretty, it was roaring, it was a nice fire because it was a winter's night. Yeah. It was, I think it was... October. No, October, yeah. So it was lovely and warm, and um, I looked up and saw, like, the roof was on fire, the ceiling. That's when I called you, saying, it's on fire, what do I do? You were outside, though, smoking, weren't you? Didn't you go outside for a cigarette, and that's when you saw the roof on fire? That's when I saw the roof on yeah. fire, yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, I don't know the number for the fire brigade, mm-hmm. but go and ask uh, Norbert, Norbert, who, yeah. Lives across, or go and ask Monsieur Lanel who lived next door. Yeah. So we had quite a long driveway, so mm-hmm. I could hear you on the other end of the phone walking down the driveway. Yeah, yeah. And I heard you knocking on the door, and you said, He's not in, he's not in. I said, Well, go across the street to Norbert. That's right. So yeah. I heard you walk across the street, rat a tat tat on Norbert's door, and you, I heard you go, Norbert, Norbert, fire, fire, and I heard him commotion. Mm-hmm. And then you came back on the phone to me and you said, no, you said, where's Sonny No, 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 you didn't. Oh, you said on. to me, what shall I do about the children? <laughs> <laughs> You'd left the two boys in the house that was burning. Yes. Um, I didn't think it was dangerous at the time because it was on the roof. <laughs> I didn't think about things falling down. Uh, I but like, I got them out, I got them out I safely. Said, Get them out. Yeah. Get them out, and then the phone cut off. Oh! So I was driving through the forest with a, in a dead zone, not knowing whether my kids were perishing in a fire for mm. about five minutes until I could get hold of you on the phone again. And you said it's okay, they're out, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And at that, so that at that point, I didn't really care whether the house burned down or not, as long as everybody was okay. 
Our friend, former MTV producer Alan Howard, was staying with us at the time and I was out with him when I got the call saying that the place is on fire. There was that moment as we were driving down the country lane and we turn a corner and there's beautiful rolling pine forests either side and in the middle there's this, this plume of smoke coming up um, that, was, that was your house. <laughs> and um, So we go flying, flying down there and pull into the village, and, which is a pretty small village, pretty small little French village, and there's three, um, uh, three or four even um, big French fire engines there pumping God knows how many litres of water into the building. And when we got there, the, the, the fireman said to me, my car was parked right next to the chateau, and he was basically saying, voiture, voiture, allez, allez. And um, I kind of knew enough French to know that meant get your bloody car moved. So I jumped into my lovely little golf convertible I had at the time and drove it as quick as I could straight onto the lawn. And just as I did that, there was this big lump of the roof came flying down and just crashed right where my car was like 10 seconds previously, which was kind of scary. I kind of, you get like a, Jesus, that was, that was a close call. Um, and yeah, and, and we, I think the next hour or so, we probably just watched the chateau burning down <laughs> and it, it really did burn down the whole east Half wing of it. yeah yeah the and the whole village came out to watch it they all oh, had yeah. sandwiches and drinks didn't yeah, they? yeah it came was out like to... there was a show on in the village <laughs> all we, we was just stood neck. there like idiots watching the house yeah. burn alan was struck by paul's demeanor paul was inordinately calm as i remember um, and it was almost like it was happening in slow motion. He was kind of, he was kind of, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? And it's like, Paul, mate, that's house burning down. It's more than bad. Um, but he was like he always was. He was like very kind of subdued is possibly the word. Um, but yeah, no, I would have expected him to be a little bit more concerned um, about what was going on. But he, he, he just kind of took everything in his stride. You filmed it on the night, because I remember saying to you, Alan, get your camera, and you filmed a bit with me, and I said, this is all I've got left in the world, a cup. <laughs> got left in the world, a cup. Uh. My house is just burning down. And, and the, there was a little bit of footage of the flames burning, but very, very little. I don't think you felt yeah. comfortable filming too much that night. It wasn't a case of I felt comfortable. It was a case of, like, I didn't really know. I mean, if I'd, if I'd kind of been... I don't know. There was a mass when your house was burning down, and I kind of felt like filming it was wasn't the best thing I could do for you guys. I think. Yeah. And that's when Rosemary and and um, John and their four kids. That's when they turned up. Yeah. Our friends Rosemary and John Barrett and their four kids were on their way to visit us for a week for a holiday and Rosemary, who's a journalist, was going to write a travel feature about this wonderful property that you would love to go and visit for your holidays. We arrived and we, we thought we were coming to a, you know, a nice warm chateau and a takeaway meal. But we came to find it like, you know, it was like flames. Yeah, very warm chateau, exactly. With, uh, yeah, flames shooting out of the roof. It's like, uh, I think we might have to stay somewhere else for the next few days. Yeah, that was devastating, really, yeah, what happened to it. You know, we'd just finished it. But the firemen did rescue a lot of the stuff, didn't oh, they? Yeah, moved they... the piano and all kinds of furniture kinds from of one furniture. side to the other. Yeah, yeah, they did a great job. And we stayed there till about midnight watching it burn down while the fire brigade was trying mm -hmm. to put the flames out. Yeah. And uh, somebody in the village had a big place, and a, like a dormitory-type thing where school kids went, so they yeah. let us stay there. Let us stay there. So we were very fortunate about the French tradition that, you, that the village have to accommodate anybody whose house burns down. So we ended up spending the night in this wonderful hostel that was absolutely freezing. There was no heating. I think we slept in our clothes with all our coats on the bed. And I think we ended up boiling a kettle and making pot noodles with... with was it like putting, did we, we end up putting sausages in the kettle or something, didn't we? And then the next morning we got up and I walked back with you to the house expecting a pile of ash. Mm -hmm. And actually I was really surprised and happy that 
half of the house was untouched. Completely untouched. And the other half wasn't too bad, apart from a lot of water damage from the mm-hmm. from the firemen's water. Mm-hmm. Um, but the roof was burned off. The roof and was the, off. And the, the, our beloved, we called it the porno suite, the yeah. room with the... Jason with the, King suite, yeah. No, yeah. it wasn't Jason King suite. Oh, it was right. the one with the gold bath. Oh, right. That's obviously where the fire had started, yeah. and that was absolutely black and ashen and the, completely and utterly destroyed. The bath was gone. The bath was gone. I mean, it was just literally ash, wasn't yeah. it? I went back the next morning, um, and it was just it was just extraordinary. Um, there was the, the the whole place was well the whole top of the house was we walked in and there was just like water from the from the fire engines pouring through the ceiling still um, the walls were just the, the supporting walls were just charcoal you could literally pull off lumps of charcoal and write your name on the wall um, we went up to the bedroom which we probably shouldn't have gone up those stairs considering um, but we went up into the bedroom where there was no roof anymore. Um, where where my kids and ex had been the night before, and um, on the beds they were sleeping on, there was just the metal frames of the beds left because it had all been burnt away, and the James Bond golden bath had, had, had melted. It completely yeah. melted. That the whole bath was was no. It was just it was burnt oh. to a cinder. The bath. It's footage somewhere of us walking round the house, um, and Paul and basically I'm saying to Paul to Paul. How you feeling? Tell me. And it's like, oh yeah, wasn't wasn't it was a bit funny old night. <laughs> it's like Paul, mate. I remember he had a, he had a little hat on, and he was walking he was walking around, and it was I don't know, it was like just another just another night really. And I, I if that probably is like just another night in the world of the Happy Mondays, it probably was like that. And this was Paul the morning after the fire perusing the damage. I had a lovely fire going just in there. Burning nicely, ready for the guests to arrive. And then the smoke alarms went off. And I looked up and saw flames coming out the roof. I asked our cameraman from the Manchester office, Phil Smethurst, to come over to France for a few days and help film some of the aftermath of the fire. Paul went to the airport to pick him up. He's also a cameraman and editor on this show. I remember being nervous going to meet him because I knew of the Mondays, you know, clearly, you know, I was was a big indie kid at the time, so I was like... I was quite nervous about meeting him because I'd not really met many celebs at the time, like. And then we got in the car and he was just the the soundest bloke. I think we we just chatted nonsense pretty much for two hours. But, yeah, he was... uh, Yeah, it's kind of... I think I was I was necessarily shocked, but it was the, it was it gave me a certain introduction to two celebs and going, no, all right, do you know what? They're, they're just normal people, aren't they? Really? It was like a castle. It's a castle in a village, and then you, I think we we saw it from the front, which didn't look damaged, and then when we sort of pulled up and came round the front, I was like, it's it's both amazing and it, it's completely and utterly gutted on one side of the house. I remember taking GVs of of having water dripping from the chandeliers and stuff. And then I was straight in with the camera and it was like, it's an an insane place. And then it's also just had an insane amount of damage. It's just like, it was quite, it was shocking in both ways, really. It was like shocked at the size of the place and then shocked at the damage that was caused from the fire. But he wasn't phased. He just didn't, he just seemed to take it in his stride that his his big house in France had had half gone. (laughs) And yet, um, yeah, it was like... Just another day in the life of Paul Ryder, I suppose. And we went on a tour of everything. What sticks in my head, and only because we've revisited the footage quite a lot, was the was the, the fox. <laughs> yes, we had a stuffed fox, and sadly, it perished in the fire. Hey, hey his tail's burnt off. Where's the fire? Where's the fire? And so we decided that we would have to stay in France to sort this all out. And so we put the boys in school, in the local village school. Oh, yes, I remember that. They hated it. Yeah. They hated it. They hated it. Phil remembers us inflicting some trauma on our children by making them go to school. And then the kids going to school, we filmed, we filmed a lot with the, with the kids going in. Was it, I don't know if it, 
had they been in a bit or had they not? I know they were, they were heartbroken about having to go and I know that you and Paul were both heartbroken at having to sort of leave them there. I mean, and I then... can't believe, like, why I was so adamant that they, had to, they were only tiny. Like, why was I making them go to school? Like, with hindsight now, I think they didn't need to go to school at that age, like, for a couple of months. They could have had a couple of months off. And this was us dropping them off. Oh, they were so upset. It's a classroom. It's a classroom. Come on, Fanny's waiting. That's what Fanny's waiting. You try to do what's best, don't you? You try to do what's right. But there's a fine line between making them do something that really traumatises them. And our sons, Sonny and Chico, back then, had a very strong memory of what their dad said when he saw the fire. Daddy said a naughty word when the fire was going. On the roof. Um... It was shit. (gasps) We then had a lot of fun and games with insurance assessors. Remember the two insurance companies that were vying for our business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two insurance assessors fighting yeah. for our business that almost came to blows because they both wanted to represent us because mm-hmm. they get a cut of it. Yeah. Um, and then we finally agreed on one. But the first job that had to be done was waterproofing the roof. The roof yeah. So tell us about those roofers that came to... So, so we, was, we was kind of forced to live in France. We'd spoke about moving there quite a few times. Yeah. And... Um, forced by fire to live there while we sorted, uh, sorted the half of the house that was burnt down. Um, so we got a roof around who put up this tarpaulin and like tried to make it waterproof, but it rained and it was just just such a bad job. Yeah. It, it ruined everything that was left inside the house yeah. because it was letting water in. Cameraman Phil Smethers remembers Paul desperately trying to salvage his possessions. Do you remember him looking for his lyrics book? I do, yeah. He had a bag, it was, it was a, like a brown leather bag that he was like, and I don't know, it, it, it just meant a lot to him. I think it was just a, quite a small book, wasn't it? Just a little scrapbook full of, full of lyrics um, that you would have imagined would be ruined given the amount of water. And I think he found it in the kitchen, the lower kitchen, underneath where the turret had completely, like, been destroyed. And then found this bag, and somehow in this leather or faux leather bag, he found this book that had barely, barely any damage to it. It looked like a minor spill at best. No way. Survived. Soaking wet, but it's there. So the whole house was completely ruined on that one half and everything had to be gutted and rebuilt. Completely rebuilt. Yeah. Done. (laughs) Done. Okay. (laughs) So we're back. Hi. Hello. Um, It was a bit heavy yesterday's uh, session, wasn't it? Very heavy. I got back to the hotel and puked up. Really? The emotions was... uh... I don't know exactly what I was feeling, but it was it made me physically sick. <laughs> Why <laughs> do you think that was? It was like a therapy session. Yeah. Heavy therapy session yesterday. Yeah. Um just brought up a load of old stuff. Yeah. Very heavy. I wanted to say, I feel like um I'm focusing on all the bad stuff. Ooh. <laughs> and I feel first of all I feel like I need to say to you that it's really brave that you're doing this. Oh, thank you. And I just want to acknowledge that it's really brave what you're doing. And, yeah, I don't normally do interviews. I know. Especially in depth like this from my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows all the secrets? No, no but I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that... It'll help some people, mm. especially people who are struggling with addiction, and especially also partners of people that are struggling with addiction. Yeah. To hear the other stories, to know that they're not alone and that the, mm. the struggle is real. I hope it helps somebody, yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, you've already been approached by somebody who told you that you are responsible for them taking heroin. Yeah. But I hope you're also responsible for people approaching you and saying you inspired them to get into recovery. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. That would be great. 
because like why are we given these trials and tribulations in our lives there's got to be a reason hasn't there there has to be a reason to get where I am today, for you to get where you are today. Yeah. I think we're both living good lives right now. Yeah. Yeah. We are. I think we have to go through that shit. But, to, like, from a, a, a today perspective, for me, I've kind of processed it all and it's fine. And then when you go into it and you start talking about it, you realise it really wasn't fine at the time. Oh, I was quite sick. It was really, really <laughs> traumatic. Yeah. And I think that it's easy to underestimate the toll that it takes on you. Very much so. And and also the other thing that I want to come across is that and you can tell you can say this with more authority than me, but addiction isn't a choice. It, addiction is a disease. Definitely. And I'm not trying to excuse any of the behaviour. But addiction isn't simply oh, I just want to get off my head because I want to have a party. It's mm. about medicating a pain. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I've said this before, but I think that the problem with getting clean, and I've witnessed this with you, is that if you don't address the reasons that you picked up in the first place, mm -hmm. you still have that pain. Mm. And what do you do with that pain? If you don't process that and 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 get rid of it in some in some sense then yeah. you just look for if you put the drugs down you look for another way to medicate that pain yeah you swap addictions or um, for me it was getting therapy afterwards after doing the detox going to therapy for so many years yeah. that helped me stay um clean but it's not a quick fix is it no. you can't you can't just do a month and then come out and then you fix because you've had a few group therapy sessions. No, no, but I carried on it's, with therapy after yeah. after that, that initial three months in in Venice in California. Yeah, you know. But um, no, you. I'm, I salute you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, very seriously, much. it's like it, I salute it's... you for putting up with me. Well, there's a question mark over whether that was the. the right thing to do for me at the time that's true but you just deal with it day to day don't you you do what is right for you at the time that's why they say just one day at a time yeah that's yeah. all you can do but you do have it. a choice yeah as a as a partner of somebody who's an addict yeah. you do have a choice you can't control what they do but you can control what you do mm -hmm. but sometimes it's feels impossible to step away from somebody that you love yeah Especially when you recognise that it's a disease and mm -hmm. it isn't really just a choice, which, mm -hmm. you know, people who are not affected by addiction... Yeah, I think can... it's more recognised over here in, in America as a disease than it is in England. Yeah. It's definitely recognised more as a, as a disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What can be done, though? Like, what what is the solution? Hmm. wow. For... Using addicts? Yeah. But I've always said, because I did it through NA and AA, I've always said it's not the, they're not the only way. It all depends on the person. Mm -hmm. You know, there's other ways of doing doing uh, the sobriety thing. Mm -hmm. You've you just got to find out what's right for you. Mm. But what's the first step? The detox. Yeah. Get in and get a good detox. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is it just lack of resources, do you think? Like if, if detoxes were easier to come by and not as expensive? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Detox and aftercare. Detox, and support aftercare, groups. support groups, personal therapy. you got to follow it up with something. Mm. Yeah. It's like you said, you just left empty with still with the disease. Yeah. Festering, yeah, doing doing its push up, just waiting for you to relapse. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. So thank you for sharing your story and laying it all out. That's okay, that's cool. Um. Okay, so we were talking about twenty four hour party people. Yeah. And I thought of something really funny that happened. <laughs> <laughs> that... You're going to tell the story going to can. <laughs> To the film festival. <laughs> Go on. So, um, the, the, and we couldn't get. I couldn't even get in my own party. 
afterwards, oh, really? after the oh, premiere, wow. we couldn't get in. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, it took us like half an hour to get through the fucking... Oh, and you were in the band as well, weren't it? Yeah. There was a... Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. So the, the movie was being screened at the Cannes Film Festival. And yeah. It was a big event. Big event. And the key actors from the film were invited, including you. Mm-hmm. And I came with you. Yeah. And um, for some reason, there was a mix-up with the tickets... And we ended up being sat with the public rather than sat with the film people. Yeah. And, mm. and when it was, uh, when the screening was over, we were herded out with all of the regular people and not down the mm-hmm. important people's exit. <laughs> and we were herded out, and this photographer stopped us and wanted to take pictures of us. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, he's recognised you, he knows who <laughs> you are. And so we posed for these pictures, feeling like we were really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he handed, his, handed us his card and said, oh, it'd be $300 each, or 300 euros each for the for the pictures. And he was just one of these, one of these uh, fly-by-night photographers trying to make a few uh, euros on the Another side. Another spinal tap moment it in my funny. life. It was funny. The rock and roll mums, Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, and Gaz Whelan's mum, Sandra, went to see the film when it was released. When 24-hour party people oh, came yeah, out yeah. and we went to the print works to see it, there was all these younger people and there's me and Derek when the lights came up at the end and we stood up, these two oldies. It Very was funny. funny. It was like we went from being, oh, we're really important to like, <laughs> oh, actually, no, we're not. And yeah. all these young people was looking at us if we'd got three heads. So the cast of the band who played the roles of the Mondays in the film were playing a gig in Cannes at the party for its premiere and Paul Ryder was going to join them for a few songs. I wanted to get the take of Paul Popplewell, who played the role of Paul Ryder in the film and became good friends with Paul as a result. But a family of crickets had invaded our studio and I wanted them to be quiet. This is ridiculous. They're like in the top of the boxes, I think. Oh, right. They make a mess. Yeah, I think so. I thought it was crap. (laughs) Somebody paid for the lads who played the Happy Mondays to have two weeks, maybe a week or two, in a studio in Manchester to rehearse, to do five or six songs at the premiere. Rowetta was in the film too, playing herself. Paul played his own bass. Um, with the baggy undies we called them or what crappy undies, whatever we called them. So we did, um, I think we did the rap party um, at the Astoria. We did one at the Astoria. We did a diesel party at Fabric and we did Cannes Film Festival, which is incredible, really, to play when it was up for a Palm d'Or. I think that was, um, yeah, and there was a lot of pride there. Tony Wilson was with us as well. I wish I could be more like you, really, because I go in, woof, and then I think, why did you do that? Why did you do it? You said to me, I say what I think. And I yeah. said to you, I think what before I say it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, no, that's right. Yeah. Linda does think I don't think. And I go, Bruh. and then I think, I shouldn't have done that. Paul Popperwell was doing a play on the night of the party in Cannes, so Paul Ryder played at the party instead, and Paul Popperwell flew in after the show. I arrived at the villa when people were sort of getting ready to go to bed or something. I had a couple of days in Cannes and I really ought not to have gone because I was supposed to start filming something else on the Monday. Ironically, we were starting a film, a BBC film called Rehab in London. Oh. <laughs> Rowetta was there as well. She yeah. was singing with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But it took us an hour to get in the place. We, they, they wasn't letting us in. <laughs> Another spinal tap moment. <laughs> Couldn't get in my own party. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a fun time, wasn't yeah. it? It yeah. was a really fun time. Um, and that movie was it was directed by Michael Winterbottom, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah amazing yeah. director. Also, they discovered that Michael Winterbottom was so blown away by his acting. He just said he really plays sinister well to play this um, secure. What are you going to call them? But the gangsters, really, who ran the door. Um, and yeah, and he was really impressed with his acting. I think that was really good for Paul as well to do some acting. And- Absolutely, and because Michael Winterbottom really, you know, he said he's, he's just a natural. He was really impressed. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, and Paul Popplewell, who played you, 
yes. actually ended up staying with us when they were filming and became really good friends with him. I, I, we went to his wedding. Yeah. I was um, I was very relieved during the movie that when he was on the tour bus, naked, that when he turned round he had a big cock. I know! <laughs> I was so pleased. It was like, yeah, go on. <laughs> I can't say this without blushing. <laughs> you can. I regret doing it, is the truth. Why? Doing a full frontal. Why? Of, well, come on, it wasn't necessary, and I've got kids now. I'd love to show my kids that film, but how do you show your kids a film that you get your bits out in? You didn't do anything bad with it, though, did you? You didn't use it as a lethal weapon. <laughs> no, but Rowetta used a whip as a lethal weapon and smacked my ass oh. in the same scene. Your kids would appreciate the art. The artist. Just bit, tell them the director made you do they're it. They're a bit young yet, but, um, yeah, I know Paul was pleased about that. But I'm not going to say that. Don't put that in. <laughs> Don't pull that in. <laughs> <coughs> oh dear, look at me. Don't pull that in. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so um, during that point, we bought the house in France, which we talked about last time. Uh-huh. Um, and one of my strongest memories of France was you, again, struggling with your heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And um, we planned to go to Prague because when we'd gone to New York to film the flashbacks video which was the big arm video. I went to the place where I used to live when I lived in New York in 1986. Mm -hmm. And in the place next door to where I used to live, there was this sign in the window and it said, if you're a a struggling heroin addict, look into Ibogaine. Mm. So we started researching Ibogaine. What a strange substance that is. So Ibogaine is something that is found in the root root of the Tabernacus uh, uh, Ibagoa plant. Oh, that's only right. found in the southern tip of Cameroon. That's right. That's where it grows. Yeah. And um, apparently several decades ago, some heroin addicts in New York had all taken Ibogaine. Because it's a bit like ayahuasca, I think. Like yeah. It's psycho, psychoactive. You go on some sort of weird trip. Yeah. But the weird thing was that these heroin addicts that took it recreationally, mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks found that they had no desire to use heroin again and no bad detox and no bad detox no no cold turkey no anything and so a professor from i believe miami was investigating it and was doing research into it Mm -hmm. and it had started this was like about 20 years ago it had started to get some sort of recognition so i did some homework and i found a guy in prague Uh uh-huh that performed Ibogaine therapy for heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we booked flights to Prague. Why didn't and, uh, you come? Because 
the night before, Chico had gone weird, had had some sort of blood sugar issue oh, and had yeah. to go into the hospital in France. Right. So we ended up not being able to go with you, so you went on your own to Prague to meet this guy that we'd never met before. Never met before. To, who was going to perform this extremely dangerous therapy because apparently if you take heroin on top of the Ibogaine, you die. Like, yeah. it's as simple as that, and that's yeah. why... It makes the heroin stronger. Yeah, I think yeah. subsequently mm-hmm. it's not really been explored any further because of the risks with it. But, yeah, it's very risky. Um, so tell us about that trip to Prague. Oh, God, it was like... It ended up on this, like, housing estate, communist... from communist <laughs> Prague. Well, you know, them big, sprawling, um, like, flats that they have. Yeah. I ended up there thinking I was stuck in communist um, country, but it obviously wasn't because it had started to open up to the Western world. Yeah. And um, he gave me this Ibogaine, and I've never took anything like it in my life. It's not like it's not like LSD. It's, it's, it's not like it's not like anything. But it sent me on a weird trip <laughs> where I thought I was in communist Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was trying to kill me. Wow. So I got on the phone to you and said, what's going on? I've no idea what this stuff is. It's sending me on a, on a weird one. <laughs> and you had to calm me down and say everything was OK just to get on with it. But I didn't even know that everything was OK. I'm stuck in France with the kids. You're in Prague in a high-rise building with some guy that we'd never met. And he was kind of strange, wasn't he, the guy? Yeah. Nice guy, but a little bit weird. Yeah. Especially when you've taken Ibogaine, he, he kind of got weirder. Yeah. But he, 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 his heart was in the right place. He was helping uh, yeah. addicts. He was helping. Yeah. He helped a lot of people. Yeah. Because you can't just take it and be on your own. You got to have somebody yeah. watching you. Yeah. But mm. then two weeks later, you had to do it again. Yeah. And you did it again in the house in France. Mm-hmm. And I remember our friend Jeanette, Jeanette Jackson, Jeanette, was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeanette's a really good friend of ours. She's a biochemist, a nutritional therapist, and she's a radio DJ with her own show on Rossendale Radio 104.7 FM. So Paul picked me up from the airport, and Paul really was the addict then. I mean, he was not in a good place then. I'd never seen Paul like that, like like an addict, like twitchy and, you know, just... Very different to what I'd seen of him, but one, he was the addict that turned up, and two, was an addict that was going through a detox very soon. So he was highly strung. He was um, nervous. He was um, anxious. And we got to the car, and we are just about to get in the car, and he he was going to start a cigarette, light a cigarette. And I said, Paul, please, honestly, I'm not being funny, but I can't get in the car with you smoking. Like, it'll make me feel sick. I can't do it. Uh, so he wasn't happy. And um, so then we had to stop, honestly, every two to three miles so that Paul could get out of the car and have a cigarette. So a two and a half hour journey, which should have been, took well over four and a half hours because every two to three miles, Paul got out of the car to have a cigarette. <laughs> which was just hilarious on some level, but like really frustrating on others. I remember walking down in the village with her and you were about to do this and she said to me, Angela, it's just another Tuesday afternoon. You just have to think it's just a regular Tuesday afternoon. Wow, that's I good advice. I've never forgotten that. Yeah, I've never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. It's just another Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. My memory of being with Paul at the Chateau on his heroin detox was Paul was in the attic, um, <clears throat> right at the top of the Chateau, and you and I were downstairs in the lounge in the kitchen at the bottom of the chateau, like a long, long, long way away from each other. And Paul was in a room going through torture. And I really mean torture. Like, at my memory is of hearing Paul crying and screaming and howling, like howling, like an animal howling as he came off or he was going through this Ibogaine detox. Yeah, I have no recollection of that at all. Isn't it weird yeah. how we selectively remember things or selectively block things out? I don't remember hearing him howling. All I remember is, <laughs> is you and me walking through the village. We went for a walk. We were walking and I remember the exact spot where I was in the village. And you said to me, 
Go on, tell me what you remember what you said. Well, because whilst Paul was going through this Ibogaine detox, because it was so, you know, horrifying, the, the, the screams and the howls and time seemed to stand still in the chateau. Like, we lost days, it seemed to me. And, and it was bleak and it was scary. And so eventually you and I went off to the market and said, we need to get out. And when we got out to the market, there was life, people chatting. It was just another day. And I turned to you and said, Angela, it's just a Tuesday. It's just a Tuesday. Because you and I being in that chateau whilst Paul was going through this detox was like being in a different, really, really different world. So when we realised it was Tuesday, we both kind of came back to the now and went, oh, it's Tuesday. Yeah, it was it was a, a, a strange yeah, it was surreal, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely surreal. And it was it was very hard to actually grasp that concept, but but when I did, it really helped me. It was like, oh right, yeah, it is. It's just another Tuesday afternoon. It wasn't though, because you were <laughs> doing this psychoactive drug that could have killed you yeah. in our in our France house. It's a good way to look at it though. Yeah. Just another Tuesday afternoon. So did it work? Yeah, it works. It's a it's a really good detox. Um, it, it's over the, the 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 height of it only lasts for forty five minutes, but you you you're still kind of under the influence hours later because mm-hmm. it, it takes you out of you. Mm-hmm. But the the main bulk of it is a forty five minute kind of trip. Yeah, but not like LSD. I think you deeply deeply wanted to be clean. I think he, um, it was almost like a, a, a different part of him was the addict. That's what I picked up on. Like he really wanted to be clean. And when, like, for example, when he came out and had them, that coffee and cigarette early morning, there, was no, there wasn't an addict there. He just wasn't an addict. He was just a, a bloke with a, a lovely house in France having a cup of coffee first thing in the morning listening to the birds. So for me, there was a duality there around one person that was an addict and a real desperate, desperate addict and another person... I couldn't relate to that just wasn't an addict um and I think I think for me if I'm if I'm really looking in I think there was a a lot of sorrow about from him about the fact that he was an addict and just didn't want to be one and tell me I remember you saying you met some oh my my ancestors (laughs) yeah that's what it's it's used as a um, a rite of passage in the Cameroon for the tribes they use it as a rite of passage to meet their ancestors and come of age. And I did meet my ancestors. Incredible it was. What, you actually saw them? Yeah, yeah, this head spinning round like holograms. Yeah. With, well, I got my eyes shut. Yeah, I remember you used to say, oh, I've been to the spirit world. I've spirit been to the spirit world, world, yeah. I've been to the spirit world. Yeah. It took me to the spirit world. Was it good? It was great. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, it sorted a lot of stuff out. A few years later, we contacted him again and he said he'd stopped doing it because one of his clients had died. Yeah. But I think, again, it was because they'd snuck some heroin in there. I think they did, yeah. Um, however, it's still... So it's, it scared him enough to... Yeah, he, he really stopped do doing again. it. He, was, he helps a lot of people, yeah. but, yeah, he doesn't do it anymore. We're simply sharing Paul's experience with Ibogaine. We're not trying to convince anybody to try it. If you do want to try it, please make sure that you go to a place where it is legal and you do have proper medical supervision. It was used in the 1800s as a tincture in France. Right. And then they banned it in, in, uh, later on. Right. But it was used as a kind of a, a tincture. Therapeutic tincture. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a little bit of... Clean time at that point. Yeah. But it didn't last, did it? It didn't last, no. And it didn't last probably because you didn't, you know, again, like with any detox, you have to follow through with working out where the issue came from in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I had had no backup system. Yeah. I was just left on my own, raw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you started getting implants. Remember the implants? Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) I think I held the record at that clinic for the most implants. Right, talk about what those implants were. Naltrexone. Mm. Naltrexone implants. I had them in my arms, my stomach. I think I did about a year on them, didn't I? Yeah, so talk about what the mechanism of action Well, the opiate blocker, the naltrexone. Yeah. And you, you have a little operation where they insert... An naltrexone capsule into your arm. 
or into your stomach. Yeah. Um, it, if you take opiates, you just don't feel them. They just do not work. And you tested it out, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I tested it. Damn, damn right I did. <laughs> and it didn't work. They, they did what yeah. they were supposed to do. But again, once more, it didn't fix you because you weren't fixing yourself. No, exactly, yeah. That's why I say following up with, with something like one-on-one -on -one therapy or group therapy mm -hmm. is, is very important. And did you get to the root of what was driving your addiction during all this therapy? Did you figure out what it was? Oh, there was a few things. Yeah. Childhood stuff. Right. Yeah. And you really think that that was the trigger for everything? Yeah. Yeah, Do you yeah. not think that it was about having too much too soon and fame and being drugs all over you, the bands? Was that not did that not play a part? That played a part, yeah. When you when you're young as well, when when, when I was in my twenties, you know, you just think you're invincible mm -hmm. and you can do all that stuff mm -hmm. and it's going to last forever. Yeah, but can't live in Shangri-La forever. No, no. One of the other places that you went to was Eric Clapton's clinic in Antigua. Oh, yeah, I had two stints in there. Yeah, beautiful so. place. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Great food as well. But the second time I went, I didn't even... I, I did 30 days. Once again, no no um, support afterwards. And I got to the airport when I was leaving after 30 days and jumped in a taxi and said, get me some crack cocaine. You never told me that. I know. I know that you came home and used the day after. Yeah, that's because I used the day before in Antigua. So before I even got on the plane, I'd used in Antigua. How did you feel when you did that? Oh, stupid. You I just mean, feel ridiculous. Was it worth it when you did, like, did, was it a good hit? No, you... no, because the, the guilt and shame came. Yeah. The guilt and did shame. Did you tell anybody else when you got back that that's what you'd done? No. No, and I only told you yesterday. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Kept that one secret. You did. I'm sure you've got plenty more secrets as well. That Not really, no. That you do. No. <laughs> I think you know my life. Jeanette had a hard time relating to the addict side of Paul. I could never relate to this, this intense desire and need and, and want to have drugs I just could never relate to it so I I related to Paul the Paul that wasn't the addict as opposed to Paul that was the addict um so yeah I, and that made me feel so sad because I genuinely you know I'm quite instinctive and I'm quite I'm quite psychic in a way and and I, and I could see the the um vulnerable the real vulnerability that was Paul at, at his core, at his soul, and that part of Paul wasn't an addict, in my opinion. Something happened when you were in Antigua. You met somebody. We won't we won't reveal who he said he was, but tell us oh. that story. Oh my God! Yeah, this guy. He was. He claimed. I suppose this is a bit like going in rehab and saying, yeah, I met Elvis, Elvis was in rehab. But it's as ridiculous as that. Right, but tell he us claimed... story. So he was one of the other patients in the... He was one of the other patients, and I was in his group, and it was like, this guy's not telling the truth about something. And I said to him, it was just me and him around the smoking pit. Describe him, what did he look like? Oh, he was six foot, blonde hair... In his mid sixties, lots of scars on his knees, mm. and uh, I've been in a few groups, group therapies with him uh, in the rehab, and we was outside having a smoke, and just meeting him there, and I said to him, "You're hiding something. There's something you're not telling us." And he he smiled at me and said, "I'm a race car driver from the seventies." And uh, I'm supposed to be dead. And it was like, no, what no do, way. What do you mean by that? Well, he faked his own death. Wow. And he was a Formula One race car driver wow. from the Sony's. And I knew the name. <laughs> and I looked at him and he showed me his scars on his knees because that's what happened in his crash, where he's supposed to have died in this car crash. And... Um, 
I met him and I believe him. Yeah, I mean, could it have just been a kind of a, an alcoholic guy who was deluded, who was... Could very well be, yeah. Been, but well, I believed him. Yeah, I met him too. Yeah. I met him too and mm-hmm. I believe him Very too. believable. Yeah. But that, that goes... The story goes quite deep, but I'm not going to go into it. In what sense? Because I might get him in trouble. I should investigate. Yeah. Further, we? yeah, I might get in touch with him to see if he's still going. Yeah, well, we know where he lives, don't we? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so Big Arm, mm-hmm. you did quite a lot of fun promotions for that big, the, the two Big Arm singles that got released. One of them involved being on the Frank Sidebottom show with a special <laughs> 70s yeah. iconic guest David that- Soul. <laughs> I was on a TV show called. Um, the Frank Sidebottom show, like you said, with the, and the other guest was David Soul, wow. and we played a cover version of a fall song, "Hit the North." Was it "Hit the North"? I don't know. Can't remember. But David Soul was in my band for three minutes while we did this cover version. And Phil Smethers went with him to capture everything on camera. Around two weeks later, he needed to come back for the Frank Sidebottom show, and then yeah, he was kind of straight in. Again, unfazed. And then, did he know Frank from, I presume he did? Do you know, I presume that he would have... Yeah, I think he'd met him, yeah, for sure. But I don't think he knew that David Soul was going to be there as well. A a, a big hero of his, I think, by all accounts. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, yeah, he was, uh, uh, again, kind of unfazed because he was... It it would have been the first time, well, one of the first times, I imagine, that he would have performed on his own. I presume, because he didn't have a band with him. Yeah, you're right, actually, yeah. There was a different show he did on Channel M with the whole band. Yeah, you're right, he was just singing to a backing track, wasn't he? Certainly Frank was was, was bopping in the back. But yeah, he was kind of unfazed. And for a, a man that had played bass for so many years, to not have your bass with you. He was dancing, he was having a, he was having a, a, a good old dance from what I remember. He was, again, in having a laugh, got in, did his performance, did his interview, and yeah. off he popped. Then we followed him to go on a short film. Yeah, he was just, again, kind of unfazed. He just t- t- took everything in his stride, went in, did his gangster bit, did his fake punch. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have seen how it, how it looked in post. But, yeah, he did his, his fake punch and then, again, just kind of got his job done and off he popped back to... Uh, he was, do you know what? He was, I think he was heading straight back to France. And as Rosemary Barrett recalls, Paul was already a big fan of Frank. When we went to France, uh, John took a load of um, Frank Sidebottom animated videos uh, for the kids to watch. Uh, And when we got there, there was no telly or anything like that. So Paul was really into Frank Sidebottom. And so he just stayed up the whole night watching Frank Sidebottom animated videos the whole night. I remember that because the kids were like, "Ooh, <laughs> yeah." I don't know if you remember that, but that was one one thing that that yeah, that uh, it was. Um, he just loved it. He was chuckling away, you know, watching watching Frank on his on on doing his little. Um, that was that was probably the Worldwide Shed show. That was that was what it was. Um, so I just remember that Paul was there watching them like on a loop. <laughs> it's crazy as the TV, as the credits are rolling, you can hear David Soul saying, "This is the most stupidest thing I've ever done." <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving thirty-three percent with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. But it was great to meet David Soul. Other weird celebrity encounters you had. Do you remember you met Petula Clark? We took the kids to Disneyland in yeah. Orlando and Petula Clark happened to be singing there. She was performing that night in, in Disneyland. And then you met her afterwards. Yeah, told her I was a fan. Yeah, and uh, it was like, oh, we should collaborate. Can <laughs> you and Petula Clark? That would have been cool. Well, that would have been good, yeah, we met Petula. Who, which other celebrities have you met that have kind of had an impact on you? You must have rubbed shoulders with a lot of people. Oh, I've met a lot. Of, I've met a lot of celebrities, but the only one I was really starstruck with was Bowie. Yeah. It was like I couldn't even speak to him. Yeah. I just stared at him. Yeah. Thinking, God, that's David Bowie stood next to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, proper starstruck. Yeah. Did you have any... Like, did you meet anybody anybody else that you did actually manage to speak to? Not really. I was pretty shy. Yeah. I was pretty, didn't want to mind people. Yeah. But, yeah, I've met a lot of celebrities <laughs> over the years. Didn't you uh, kiss Lisa Stansfield on a tour bus once? No, that was um, the girl out of delight. Oh, Lady okay. Miss Kier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the Lisa Stansfield story? Oh, she was at the same party in Brazil. We went to Prince's party. Oh, right. Yeah, Did she you meet was... Prince? No, we we got told as we was walking in, don't look at Prince, don't talk to Prince, don't approach Prince. If he gets on the dance floor, move away from Prince. Oh. So uh, we got our instructions. From who? From his, his security. So we all watched and we went, there's Prince, there's fucking Prince over there. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Prince. <laughs> what did he do? He just sat there. He just sat there. <laughs> You can't tell a load of Manx not to do that. He's obviously going to do do. it. (laughs) Yeah, with with knobs on. Mm -hmm. I was live on air and I was presenting a three-hour radio show and I thought I'll just... And I never, ever, on all the radio shows ever, look at the news. I never do it because you you, you prep your show and you know what you're going to talk about. But because this was a three-hour show, I just thought I'll just have a quick... I was going on the on the news to find something I wanted to talk about and I went on the news and it came up, Paul Ryder is dead. And honestly, I... I was in such shock. I, w- I was just in utter shock and I was live on air. I cancelled some um, links and just made the show run for a little while. <clears throat> and then I contacted, I spoke to my producer and said, I'm, I'm in shock because my friend Paul Ryder has passed away. I've just seen it and I'm live on air. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and he said, well, how do you feel? Are you, are you, are you, do you feel OK to announce it if he's your friend? I feel emotional now. Oh, I feel emotional. <laughs> and he said, he said, you know, if he's your friend and, and you loved him, announce it on air. So I did. And I said, I'm, I'm going to let you know that um, a dear friend of mine, I've just found out, has passed away. Um, it's Paul Ryder and from the Happy Mondays and I'm, really in shock so um and I said it what a beautiful man he was and what a lovely friend and and I played one of the songs yeah and then I went into the second studio and I recorded a few links and then I left and I couldn't stay on air and honestly really emotional I can I can remember it as if it was yesterday coming up on the next episode You've got to slowly come off whatever your drug of choice is. You know, mine was, I was known as a dustbin because <laughs> I'd take anything and, and large amounts of it. So um, I was detoxing off all kinds of different things um, that had taken over the years. Mortified. Not so much about Paul. Mortified. The boys, that was, that was it. Oh, we were heartbroken. How could you do that? Take Sonny and Chico away from us. And the day you moved to LA was the day Sean came to live round here. So we flew to Denver. We arrived, checked in the hotel and you went to do your DJ set in Denver. 
and then at about two o'clock in the morning, there was, I heard this kerfuffle outside the room mm-hmm. and struggling to open the door, and you literally fell into the hotel room, mm. absolutely drunk as a skunk. While Angela and Paul were there, yeah, he were great. And as soon as Angela and Paul left, it were like, can we have a drink? No. <laughs> hey? Like, why are you turned into a massive arsehole? Wow, I just couldn't even speak to him. It was like... I just couldn't get any words out. Uh, it was like George Harrison. I'm sat next to George Harrison, who's feeding me egg and, egg and salmon sandwiches. with the song Paul and Pete Smith did with Rowetta around the time of the 24-hour party people film. You'll probably recognise some parts from it. Listen very carefully. It's called Party People. Please join our patrons club by going to patreon.com forward slash the Paul Ryder tapes and check out our shop by going to the website www.paulrider.tv which also has links to the socials. Come and join in the conversation. We will be back same time, same place next week. Thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate you. Please continue to spread the word about this project. Thank you to the guests and big thanks as always, goes to the star of the show, the one and the only, the late, great Paul Anthony Ryder.